This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It is Wednesday, November 15th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv and in audio on AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Smith in for Dave Brown. Hit those horns and go. Oh boy, we have a great show for you today. Coming up, Odin is wrapping up their annual Rethinking Disability Conference today. I will share my interview with one of the event speakers, Lisa Spencer, and Lisa will chat about the intersection of disability and Inuit culture. When it comes to seeking professional advice on your personal finances, what should you feel comfortable sharing with your financial advisor? Ryan Chin offers up some tips. And the Hamilton Transit workers are on strike. Emily Shavers shares some perspective on the strike's impact on commuters. All that and so much more on today's show, but we begin first with the top news stories of the day. Beginning on the international stage, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is set to head to the APEC Summit in San Francisco today. Karen Rebo has this primer. Trudeau will fly out of the greater Vancouver area this morning, bound for San Francisco, where he has a full slate of bilateral meetings while in Northern California for the APEC leaders' gathering. However, those meetings are not likely to include a sit-down with U.S. President Joe Biden. The pair met one-on-one just last month at the White House. Biden will meet on the sidelines today with China's Xi Jinping in spite of their country's tense relationship. But experts say given the stakes of what's happening in the global background, including the israel Hamas war and the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine, Canada is likely to play only a peripheral role at this summit. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. And you heard in that clip that U.S. Prime Minister Joe Biden is set to meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping to discuss their relationship and how to stabilize that connection. Karen Travers has that angle. Restoring military to military lines of communication is a priority for President Biden during today's meeting with China's President Xi. China froze military communications in August 2022 after then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, which China claims as territory. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said having the two militaries in communication is the way to reduce mistakes, avoid escalation, and manage competition so it doesn't veer into conflict. Karen Travers, ABC News, traveling with the president in San Francisco. And back here at home, a new StatsCan study found that nearly 7 million Canadians dealt with food insecurity last year. Emily Javesky has the findings. The study says that in 2022, 18% of families reported experiencing food insecurity within the previous 12 months, up from 16% in 2021. It says food insecurity was the highest in Newfoundland and Labrador at 23%, followed by New Brunswick and Alberta, which both sat at 22%. The study found homes with a racialized breadwinner reported higher food insecurity compared with a non-racialized, non-Indigenous earner, and this was especially true for Black Canadians. Emily Joveski, The Canadian Press. A new poll suggests Canadians want to see a change in leadership. 
almost two-thirds of respondents have a negative view of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and almost half want them to resign before the next election. Karen Rebo has all the details. Trudeau's Liberals have just passed the eighth anniversary of their first election win in 2015. But a Leger poll of over 1,600 Canadians done last weekend for the Canadian press suggests widespread dissatisfaction with the Liberal government on everything from housing affordability and inflation to health care, government spending and climate change. While affordability, housing and public debt are higher on the reasons people want Trudeau to go, one in five people surveyed said they want him to resign simply because they're just tired of him. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. And lastly, you've heard of snakes on a plane before, but now how about horse on a plane? Alex Stone has this unusual story. It wasn't a typical call made by the pilots flying a Boeing 747 that was out over the Atlantic Ocean after taking off from New York's JFK Airport heading to Belgium. Yes, sir. We are a cargo plane. Uh, we have live animal horse on board the airplane, and the horse managed to escape his stall. The audio from liveatc.net, the pilot saying they needed to dump fuel and return because a horse was out of its stall in the back. We need to return, return back to New York. We cannot get the horse back secure. After dumping fuel, they turned around and went back to New York. Alex Stone, EBC News. Okay, that's it for the top news stories of the day. It's time to stop horsing around here. And let's take a look at the daily polls. First, we will look at yesterday's poll results where I asked you on Tuesday, how well do you handle tech issues when they arise? 20% of you said very well. 50% of you said somewhat well. And 30% of you said poorly. We had some really nice responses through Facebook. Kendall wrote in, very well when I'm following my wellness plan and taking care of myself. Somewhat well when I'm dealing with stressful circumstances or navigating emotional realms. Bracket, I handle it poorly. I need to take a look at what's going on inside my mind. And I need to take better care of myself. It's not usually the tech issues for me, but how I handle the issue and the surrounding factors. When I'm calm, tech issues don't appear to be that bad. But tech issues make me stressed. I can't always control the tech issue, but I control how I feel at times. I'm working on it, though, with a smiling emoji. Thank you very much there, Kendall. And Leanne wrote in, I work in tech, so generally very well. But I will admit that there are days when I handle it poorly, depending on what the issue is. I always try to remind myself and others that nothing works 100%, 100% of the time. That was very well said from Leanne. Now, for today's daily poll, this is actually going to relate to the topic that I'm going to be chatting with Ryan Chin about later on in the show. But I want to pose this question to you. How often do you check in with your financial advisor? Every month, every few months, every year, or never. You're never checking in. You're just giving someone your money to deal with and hoping everything goes well. So we're going to bring in Elizabeth Moeller and John Lepke to weigh in on this daily poll. Elizabeth, we will start with you on this. How often do you check in with your financial advisor? Yeah, that's a great question. So 
I would be in the sort of once a year or, you know, every six months camp. I realized every six months wasn't an option. Um, but I, you know, it, it tends to coincide with tax time, which isn't necessarily good because you're always uh, at that point trying to get all your paperwork together and, you know, you're, you're rushing. Um, but I tend to sort of check in around tax time, generally around, um, you know, what contribution room I have in my RSP and, um, you know, how much I need to, to put in to maximize that. Um, so I tend to do that. I also tend to check in if I have a change. So if I can put more or less into say the RDSP, um, then I would do a check-in to make those arrangements, but they tend to be around specific events. So, you know, tax time or, Hey, something good happens. I have more money. Yay. Um, and I can put more into the RDSP, but those, those general check-ins that I think probably would be really helpful. I don't do, and I don't kind of talk through like what's going on with me financially as a, you know, as a client and what kind of program I should be on. On a, on a regular, which I think would be helpful. So for me, it's sort of event driven or, um, you know, time of the year driven in the case of the taxes. Yeah, that's a very fair point. And I, I for myself, I would say that I'm kind of in that camp of every few months and it's not going to be a major check in. It's not going to be a full, you know, portfolio review, so to speak. But maybe there may be like, oh, I have a question here. Or as you say, Elizabeth, there's a, a bit more money available that you can you can stow away. Or maybe there's a change in the market. The one thing I really appreciate that my financial advisor does is he sends out rather consistent emails on what, yes, what's happening in the markets, things like yes. that. So so even if I'm not reaching out, he's also presenting information as well, sending emails, sending check-ins, and keeping me up to date on what's happening as well. So I appreciate that also. John Lepke, what about you? How often are you checking in with your financial advisor? I'm, uh, I'm early on in this journey with a okay. uh, financial advisor. We can blame the masters of fine arts or just the way I built my career for that. Um, I tend to go off the board with these polls, and and if I may, I think option F uh, should be not as often as I should. Um, uh, so if I if I had to take it from the list that you've given me there, I would say every few months, but that's largely because I'm early on in this in this journey of not just. Uh, uh, yoloing it when it comes to the uh, the financial <laughs> side of my life. And uh, you mentioned the RDSP earlier. That's certainly a, an area of interest for me because I don't know about either of you, but whenever I phone CRA, they have no idea how anything yes. works. And I get about seven answers to eight questions and I leave very confused. So I'm glad that there are financial advisors in the world with a, on the scale of things, fairly new program who are able to uh, shepherd me through that. Yeah, that's a very good point, I John. I agree more. Yeah, because the thing is, too, for for myself, like the the RDSP, I kind of, me and in, in my family, we kind of discovered it a bit like by accident on your own. You kind of you're, you're doing research and find it, and then we present it to our our financial advisor at the time. This was back when I was you know earlier in my twenties, so I was still new to that game as well as you you mentioned, John. Like you currently are, and it's. It was it was that learning process together, and and having gone through it with the financial advisor I'm still with today, he's then been able to take it to other clients who would be eligible who may not have been aware of it. So I I find there's there's that value as well. It's like even if your financial advisor may not be aware of all the things that are available, the subsidies, all the programs, 
that if you do the research together, if you go and pose questions to them, that they go do research, that you may find you're eligible for other programs, and then maybe other people that they work with could be eligible as well that they may not be aware of. So that's a very well put point. Thank you both for chiming in. We'll be checking in later on the, with the, you in the show. But for you at home, if you want to weigh in on this conversation, you can do so by voting on the poll on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. or on Twitter slash X through at Accessible Media. Coming up after the break, though, the Odin Conference is wrapping up the Rethinking Disability Conference today. And I will be sharing my interview with one of the event speakers, Lisa Spencer, who is chatting about the intersection of disability and Inuit culture. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. back to Now with Dave Brown. I'm Alex Smythe. The Ontario Disability Employment Network is wrapping up the Rethinking Disability Conference today in Richmond Hill, Ontario. In November also happens to be Indigenous Disability Awareness Month. So on Monday, I had a chance to speak with several speakers from the event. I was able to interview them remotely from Studio 7 right here in Toronto. And one of the people I had a chance to speak with was Lisa Spencer. Lisa is the communications specialist for the Nunavumi Disabilities Makina Swatik Society. Lisa chatted about the intersection of disability and Inuit culture. Here's my conversation with Lisa now. Hi, Lisa. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you, Alex. How are you? I'm not too bad. So uh, let's dive into this topic. So what is the current landscape of disability within the Inuit community? That is a very loaded question. So the landscape that uh, is involving disability in the Inuit community, uh, first and foremost, is that disability is heavily stigmatized in the territory. There is no direct translation for the word disability. And so for us as service providers, it can be rather complicated in terms of reaching the community and providing support where needed when the community that we are servicing uh, is hesitant to even adopt the label. So what we do in Nunavut is we put emphasis on the barriers to participation and barriers to access and allow Nunavumiat to come forward and self-identify. And so your your conversation always uh, the, uh, at Odin focuses in on the intersectionality uh, between the Inuit culture Correct. and disability. So why is it, in, and you've touched on this already, but can you expand why it's so important to really focus in on this intersection and the unique nature of the barriers that are faced within the territories? Absolutely. So when we're looking at disability, as I said, it is a colonial construct, this idea that disability equates less capable. Uh, so there's that hesitancy to adopt the label. But even uh, above all else is that the services and supports provided, typically provided for people with disabilities, is actually centered around like a European mindset. Um, we have a very colonial structure, working nine to five and, you know, working to get a paycheck, 
um, this idea of work in general is not quite the same as it is in Nunavut. So what, uh, what their priority is, is being a good Inuit, learning the skills, the knowledge, sharing traditions, helping each other, working as a community. This idea of independence is more about interdependence and interrelation. So when we're looking at supported employment and the disability landscape in the North, we need to make sure that we include the voices, perspectives, and uh, also the decision-making of the very people that we serve. I'm curious as a service provider, is there added challenges or, or barriers that you face? Because as you, you mentioned, a lot of these, the terminologies, these ideas is very uh, colonial uh, based that it, it can, there can be a bit of a, um, uh, a, a disconnection between kind of what the, the philosophy or focus of disability employment or, or service in the rest of the country is opposed to within mm -hmm. the territories. So do you face further challenges on trying to not only receive support from the broader disability community and, and support network, but also catering your service to those in your community? Absolutely. So one of the things that we, one of the barriers that we come across as service providers is that a number of the supports and services, like I said, center around this westernized idea. So it's not just about taking something that already exists and adding like little tweaks to it to make it more Inuit friendly. It's about taking something and reinventing it and making sure that Inuit are part of that decision-making process in order to uh, ensure that it is culturally specific, culturally relevant, and does not cause further harm. And so in that way, uh, how we kind of come across that barrier is we make sure that we build a rapport, have relationships, talk to people one-on-one -on -one in group settings, go to community where community is happening and have these conversations. And ultimately, when we find that someone does not necessarily relate to the concept of disability, they are still eligible for our services once we really start to have these conversations and to say, well, actually, we can provide support. We can provide services. And this is something that is very common in none of it. And we find ways to make it more culturally appropriate. Uh, a lot of on-the-land programs, a lot of culturally specific um, arts and crafts kind of programs. These are ways that we can infuse Inuit culture with supported employment initiatives that are very common in the South. And so are, uh, in terms of uh, the landscape up north, are, are there multiple service providers like yourself or is it something where you've had to really kind of build from the ground up and, and really uh, create a, a space for people that didn't exist prior? Well, supported employment in general is actually a very large industry in Nunavut, particularly because uh, Nunavut population is 85% Inuit, and that is the population that is vastly unemployed, overrepresented in that population. So supported employment is a, a very big initiative up there. Where our service is a little bit different is that we focus primarily on disabilities. And so Nunavut Disabilities Makina Swaktit Society is actually the only organization that covers all disabilities, all age groups, and in all 25 communities in the territory. And for uh, other organizations and, and folks elsewhere in the country, how can they get involved to help support you in the work that you're doing to help the community up north? Absolutely. So if there's any interest in involving Nunavumiat, uh, it would be helpful to 
uh, involve us right from the start so that we can be part of that decision-making process and make sure that what we plan on uh, implementing is actually uh, takes into consideration the Inuit culture and um, Inuit language even right from the start. We're not tweaking it. We're building something from the foundation up. And, and Lisa, like uh, the, the work you're doing is, is so important. It, it's, it's something where, you know, I, I myself didn't even uh, truly consider just the the unique difference in terms of having to uh, have so focused within the Inuit community and how different it would be mm -hmm. or, or uh, present itself from elsewhere in the country. So where can uh, folks go to learn more about the work that you and your organization is doing? Absolutely. So I'm well aware that Nunavami Disabilities, Makina Swaktit Society, is a mouthful. Uh, we do go by the acronym NDMS, and you can also find us at nuability.ca or nuability for any of our social media handles. So that's N-U-A-B-I-L-I-T-Y. Okay, perfect. Lisa, thank you so much. I, I really hope that we can uh, catch up down the road and, and check in and the work that you and your, your colleagues are doing. Thank you so much for all uh, chatting with Absolutely. me today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And that was my conversation with Lisa Spencer. So Lisa is the communication specialist with the Nunavumi Disabilities Makina Swatik Society. The NDMS is the only cross-disability organization in Nunavut. And as you heard Lisa say, to learn more about their services and support, visit nuability.ca, nuability.ca. Coming up after the break, when it comes to seeking professional advice from your personal, uh, for your personal finances, what should you feel comfortable sharing with your financial advisor? Ryan Chin offers up some tips. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. Over the course of the past couple months on the show, there have been discussions on how to choose the right financial planner, learning about investments, and gaining a perspective on risk tolerance. But today, let's turn the tables and consider the client's perspective. What should clients feel comfortable sharing with their financial advisor? Ryan Chin has some tips. Ryan is a certified financial planner with Sun Life. Hello, Ryan. How are you doing today? I'm well, Alex. Uh, thanks uh, for having me on today. Oh, thank you for being here. So you have 11 tips to share. Obviously, we can't get through every single one today. So we're going to focus on half of them and pick up the conversation next time. So your first tip, you wanted to really dive into the fact that when you are, what your financial advisor needs to know and what are some of the common reasons someone might seek professional advice uh, when it comes to seeking a financial advisor there, Ryan? Yeah, well, I mean, Alex, here's the thing. I mean, we all have different life events throughout our stages of life, whether it be you know, you're thinking about getting married, you're thinking about having children, you're contemplating purchasing your first home, you know, as we progress, maybe you're looking to retire, 
maybe there's been a death in the family. These are all very common reasons where someone might say, hey, I think it's time for me to have a little professional advice. I know a little bit, but I wouldn't mind just learning that, you know, what are the ins and outs of all of these things? And so financial advisors, beyond just knowing what, you know, you the the assets and everything you have, they, they also need to know what you care about so they can build the best plan that you're not not only works for you, but also something you can get excited about. So what kinds of examples would this entail for a client? Yeah, Alex, I mean, we we have to get to know uh, each and every one of our clients very personally. This, you know, it's all well and good to know um, things, but, but we got to know what are they passionate about? You know, if I were sitting down with you, Alex, and you said to me, you know what, Ryan, I'm thinking about purchasing a home in the next, you know, three to five years, uh, wonderful. But, you know, what else is going on with you? Tell me other things. What are the other areas of life that could potentially impact that particular goal? That's certainly a goal of yours, and I, I love it. Now, let's let's dig a little deeper. Are you, you know, passionate about something else that we may need to incorporate into this planning conversation so that we can really understand a very big holistic view of who you are and where you will go over uh, over that time. Now, sometimes there may be a uh, a situation where it it makes sense to maybe seek out a new financial advisor. Why, when you do come and meet with a potential new financial advisor, why is it important to share your previous experiences when meeting with these new potential financial advisors you may sign up with going forward? So, I mean, uh, the, these are countless, countless reasons. So, I mean, first we need to understand why is it that you're leaving your current advisor? Maybe you went into a financial institution, you opened an account, and you weren't getting any services. Uh, maybe you opened that account, you were getting some services, and you felt like you got some bad advice or misinformation or it was just inaccessible to you. I mean, there's countless reasons why you would seek out a financial advisor. And on the other side of that table, sharing those experiences with your uh, with your advisor or your new prospective advisor um, are very good because then that person is a little more equipped to understand what are your personal reasons for being there? Um, you know, how can they assist you even further in terms of like, do, do they need to provide just that little bit more accommodation to provide for your particular situation? Or is there a product or service that you're, you were asking about? Nobody was giving you good information. You know, maybe they need to take that away, do some research give you that that additional perspective and or maybe they already know it you know so um it's a relationship and and just like getting into any relationship there's a little bit of a give there's a little bit of a take but it's but it's more about really getting to understand you know why are you here how can i help you you know what have been what has been your experiences and and how can we provide that much better service than you've experienced in the past. And so building on this, you've mentioned and, and spoken about risk tolerance numerous times on uh, in the past on the show, but why is it important to share not only your comfort with risk when it comes to your finances and, and your money, but in life as well? 
Yeah, well, there you go, Alex. I mean, uh, we all, you know, can associate. If I go through the uh, the the investor profile questionnaire and I ask you, you know, hey, if the market dropped, you know, thirty percent, would you buy? Would you sell? Would you hold? Or, you know, if the market went up thirty percent. Would you buy? Would you sell? Would you hold? And, you know, those are pretty, uh, I'll say, uh, mechanical kind of question and answers. But if you said to me, well, you know what, Ryan, I'm, uh, I, I have no problems with risk. I, I, uh, I like to live life on the edge, um, you know, and or. Ryan, I'm a very conservative person. I don't like a lot of risk. I want to make sure that everything in my life is structured or predictable. I mean, these are your personal traits that we as planners or in, in some cases advisors, um, we need to in, incorporate into building that investment plan for you that, you know, hey, if you don't like risk and you're you're very you're very comfortable with, with structure and predictability, then we need to make sure that our plan represents that. If we uh, put too much risk in there, that's gonna provide you a very negative experience. And you know, you may you may decide, hey, I want to go find someone else because this person isn't identifying with me and my values. I wonder too, Ryan, if it's a, a case, especially when you start asking about the, the life questions, the, the personality questions opposed to just focused on the finances itself, do you then help paint a truer picture of maybe what someone's risk tolerance may actually be? Because if someone may come out and say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm fine with financial risk, but then everything else in their, their questionnaire and their responses and their interaction with you kind of indicate, okay, maybe they may not be as open to a level of risk that they are presenting when it comes to the financial side of things. Absolutely. Alex, you hit the nail on the, nail on the head. Absolutely. It's because we need to pair the two. And if you say to me, oh, I don't mind risk, I, I, I want to take all this risk, and then ultimately your life is not that, then that's not a good match. And I've had conversations with clients whereby, you know, they tell me one thing through that risk questionnaire, and then I find out a little bit more about them and, and sort of uncover that the risk questionnaire doesn't match their lifestyle, and by all means... I need to look at the whole picture, not just, you know, based on those those questions. It's based on the overall interaction. And building on that in, in the whole picture uh, aspect is the fact that when it comes to the income and, and why is it important to to disclose and, and share your, your income with your financial advisor, even though it may not be directly linked to the amount of money you're saving or investing with them? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I think it's about income, but it's about sort of like sort of that whole overall um, uh, uh, client picture. So when we say, you know, we do need to understand what are what are their income sources, it could be salary, maybe, uh, maybe they're getting uh, some additional money from, from uh, uh, a grant, or maybe they're getting other monies from residuals, like, uh, you know, uh, 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 um, you know, they, they've sold a book, and they're getting getting extra extra income coming in, knowing all sources of income, 
really helps us understand what is it that we should be saving? Should some of that money be directed into registered retirement savings because we need some tax deductions? Should some of that money be in tax-free savings because, you know, maybe the income uh, isn't sufficient, so a registered retirement savings plan isn't the right choice, uh, and or maybe it is, uh, it, it is such that we need to just understand, should we be limiting the risk um, because, you know, the, the income is not not sufficient to uh to uh you know take on extra risk we need to make sure that that money is going to be there when the individual needs it so there are lots of reasons that that we we want to understand the income portion but but again that does build on how we're going to use that money how we're going to invest it where we're going to direct it and then how will it better benefit the individual Absolutely. Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time to kind of list out some of your tips. Obviously, there was not enough time to get into absolutely every single one, but you'll, you'll come back next time and we'll continue this conversation where we left it off. So thank you very much. Appreciate it, Alex. Uh, live on and prosper, sir. <laughs> live on, long and prosper. That was Ryan Chin, certified financial planner with Sun Life and apparently now verified Trekkie fan. Coming up in 60 seconds, Elizabeth Moeller will have the weather report of the day. But first, here's Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index gained 1.6% yesterday. Toronto's TSX index surged 314 points to 20,023. New York's Dow Jones average gained 489 points and the Nasdaq climbed 326. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index shot up 2.5% and Hong Kong's Hang Seng surged 3.9%. Our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 72.97 cents U.S. Asian shares are mostly high today cheered by a rally on Wall Street that was one of the best days of the year following a surprisingly encouraging report on inflation. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is headed to California later this morning for three days of meetings at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in San Francisco. Yesterday, he was in B.C. with Premier David Eby announcing a $1 billion lithium-ion battery cell production plant to be built in Maple Ridge, B.C. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. Now it is time to explore the world of weather with Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, you wanted to focus today's weather report on a place that is no stranger to the colder weather as winter approaches. It is true. I think Winnipeg is earning the name Winterpeg this month for sure, because Winnipeg will stay pretty chilly for a few months before we see those temperatures rising above freezing again. And we've already had over 100 days, which is quite a lot, with temperatures that are below freezing. And on November the 13th, the average daytime high in Winnipeg hit zero degrees Celsius, starting a stretch of 129 days where it will be freezing or colder in Winnipeg. But this doesn't mean that we won't have some warmer days on the horizon here or there, but it's a signal of the trend to come. However, this week in particular will be milder than usual, 
So enjoy the relatively warmer weather while it lasts, but get ready for colder weather moving into Alberta on Sunday and then spreading east next week. Brace yourself for a blast of really cold Arctic air in the middle of next week, making temperatures colder than normal as we head into the last week of November. So in Winnipeg, keep those coats out, keep those hats out. You've earned your name Winterpeg, but we won't give you the cold shoulder. Instead, we'll encourage you to keep your shovels handy. <laughs> Very good advice there, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for this. We'll check You're in welcome. with you later on for the round table. But coming up next, there are a range of holiday events lined up in the Halifax region. Community reporter Milena Kavanavichus gives you all the details. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. Last week, over 400 students in five elementary schools in the town of Yarmouth received demonstrations on how to use a white cane. Halifax community reporter Milena Kavanavichus shares the details and uh, recaps those demonstrations. Hello, Milena. How are you doing today? Alex, um, I'm not the greatest. I feel like I've been run over by a tow truck, but here I am. I just want a small correction, not just a demonstration on how to use a white cane. It was a presentation on what would you do if you had a really cool friend who was in your primary or grade one or grade five class and they were blind. And, you know, and what kind of things would you do with them? Would you leave them indoors at recess? And most of the kids said no. Their answers were, we're going to carry them outside or we're going to piggyback them outside. One young fellow in grade three, in fact, said he was going to put a leash on his friend and help to guide him out. Well, I may not be the best <laughs> advice, but at least the spirit was there, the, the, the engagement they want to involve everybody in, in play. So that was... Uh, the spirit, you, let's let's focus on that. But, Milena, you were actually involved in these demonstrations, in these conversations. So how did the students respond to you and your guide dog, Hope? I, I will tell you, it, it was actually, uh, um, it was it, this, this was a grant that was given by the uh, regional uh, health uh, community up in Yarmouth. And a lot of these schools are rural schools, you know, 250 kids, 300, 400 um, small, small schools, rural, rural, rural areas. None of them had seen a white cane before. That was a guarantee. The classes were primary to um, grade five and it was back to back and it was me, um, all of, all on me talking nonstop five days in a row. And it's probably why I'm sick <laughs> <laughs> and all the little germs that they so gave to me in the end. Um, the reception by the kids was fantastic. Um, along with the teachers, and I'm going to say something, eh, maybe not too nice, but I, I would venture to guess for as little as these rural kids knew, I think the teachers knew even less, mm -hmm. which was interesting to me. I've done in 20 years, many, many a school presentation with children. I, I make it very interactive. They get to try, you know, um, feeling Braille, 
and and you know hitting a, a talking clock and um maybe touching the cane and at the end the big reward is to pet hope who was dynamite for her very first year out in doing this so yeah and, and the reason i brought this up was not to brag about me doing all this but the importance of advocacy to this day i'm a true believer we can talk to adults i don't know how you feel alex over and over and it goes in one ear and out the other but these kids in three of the five schools were asking their principal when is our blind student coming we're ready well so i think something was achieved <laughs> well and and that's that's the key right because yeah. you you want to be able to reach those kids you want to show that you know by sharing information by exposing them to you know what is the experience is like for someone who is blind partially sighted that you know yeah. we we are out there in the community that they may yes. not have been exposed to it before and as you mentioned too yeah. the the teachers may may have known even less than what the students did but that education that that awareness is so key so um we're, do you feel like those students and and then specifically the teachers as well do you feel like they did learn a lot and take away a lot from those conversations i i do feel um i, I feel that with every presentation i do with kids i you know you'll you'll get your one yahoo um, would you help me go to a movie theater? No. Okay. <laughs> so the no, we, we're okay. Well, why not? Well, well, you can't watch a movie. And then I explain about audio description. And, and let me make it clear. I don't talk about just complete blindness, which is, which is what is for me. But I do talk about large print and somebody may see, walk into the classroom and they see gray or blurry or, uh, you know, a little bit. So it, uh, all of it is covered within the 40 minutes that each class gets. So, um, yes, I, I definitely do feel that uh, something was taken away, you know, and, and these guys are little and hopefully they'll remember an experience um, before they move out into university or college or when they grow up and maybe leave small town, rural Nova Scotia, who knows, they'll at least they'll have something. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And Melinda, I know you aren't uh, feeling well. So I, I want to just uh, touch uh, quickly on uh, two holiday uh, concerts that are taking place in Halifax that you wanted to highlight. So what are the two concerts that are coming up and, and why did you want to highlight them? Okay. These are these are very quickly, Alex. Um, the, the Halifax Concert Band, it's free. December the 5th at St. Agnes Church, which is one of our oldest Anglican churches on Mumford Road. The locals will know where that is. Mumford Road, December the 5th, starting at 7 p.m. It will be a full concert with Christmas music. Um, there's probably about 70 to 80 uh, band members. They are fantastic. Uh, free by donation. Uh, sadly, no site of guide um, and no pre-registration, so please plan ahead how you're going to get there, who you're going to go with. Okay, it's free. And the next one I'm very excited about, it's a tuba Christmas affair. <laughs> so it's going to be 60 tubas. I don't know if I'd be able to handle 60 tubas presently how I feel, <laughs> um, but that's going to be December the 9th at uh, 2 p.m. at the Central Library in the Paulo Regan Hall. Again, it is free, no registration, no sighted guide, so plan ahead. December the 9th at 2 p.m. And 62 Tubas playing classical Christmas songs. I mean, if for nothing else, just to go and experience 62 Tubas. 
I, I agree, uh, Melena. I don't think I would be ready for 62 votes right now. I think I would have to brace myself and prepare a little bit. So I'll just recap the information quickly. So there's uh, the Halifax Concert Band Christmas on uh, December 5th at the St. Agnes Church. Again, that's it's, the admission is free. And you can find out more information by visiting halifaxconcertband.ca. HalifaxConcertBand.ca, and the second one, December 9th, at the Halifax Central Library. Those are the 60 tubas uh, that are going to be playing. And the more information, you can give them a call at 902-490-5700. One more time, 902-490-5700. Zero. Milena, thank you so much for, for powering through with us today. I hope you feel better soon. You can go rest and recover, and we'll chat with you again soon. Okay. Thanks so much, Alex. That was Milena Kavanavichis, who is a community reporter based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. In 60 seconds, John Lepke will share the entertainment report of the day, but first, legal experts in the U.S. meet to discuss the implications of AI in legal proceedings. Here's Mike Dubusky with Tech Trends. Inside Brooklyn Courthouse Tuesday, members of the New York City legal world convened to discuss how artificial intelligence tools like ChatGPT and Dolly 3 could impact their profession. These aren't the old doctored photographs, you know, that we did, you know, 20 years ago. Hector LaSalle is the presiding justice of the New York State Supreme Court Appellate Division Second Department. He says one of the chief concerns he has is the use of AI to manufacture evidence. As generative AI becomes more sophisticated, it could be actually fooling the lawyer who's promulgating it, the client giving it to them. LaSalle says the courts are not legislators, but since there is little regulation of the AI space, the courts do have a role to play. Getting facts, speaking to experts, talking to people who know a lot more than we do to find out to make sure that our internal policies um, are uh, effectively using AI. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Now it is time for the entertainment report, because Getty Lee just dropped a new memoir yesterday. John Lucky is filling in for Laura Bain today, and John has all the details. John, you want to talk about Getty Lee and his new memoir. Why did this uh, topic and idea jump out to you? Sure. I mean, I think it's always interesting when we see uh, people to the scale, particularly Canadian musicians like Getty Lee coming up with this book, which um, is titled My, and I'll spell it so that nobody feels that they have to hit the censor button on me, um, E-F-F-I-N apostrophe, uh, life, so My F-N life, um, which really charts, he's talking about his career, but also how he grew up, um, and he's talked in the past about, um, I believe he calls himself a Jewish atheist, um, so really talking about the span of his career and the time in one of Canada's leading bands. Yeah, so obviously being the front man and uh, lead vocalist for Rush, as you say, can one of Canada's uh, biggest bands, one of the most successful rock bands in history, dozens of gold albums, like this was truly a a band that kind of lasted a span of time of decades that uh, it, they they almost come across in in my mind as a musician's band. You know, the public may mm -hmm. may have less familiarity with Rush, but any musician who who is really passionate about music 
Rush is usually towards the top of their list when it comes to favorite bands, favorite musicians, and favorite artists. Absolutely. Um, and and it's one of those things where, you know, they, they their success, particularly in the awards space, I think sometimes awards, you, you, you may look at the awards list and it's a who's who of people that have been on top 40 radio. But when you look at Rush's awards and bands like them, you can really see their uh, their acclaim from from the industry as well, which is a real a real compliment. Um my question to you, Alex, is uh, what do you think makes a good musician's memoir? Ooh, that's a great question there, John. So I think when it comes specifically for musicians, because we, we've become so accustomed to this larger-than-life rock star lifestyle, like, you you know, the sex, drugs, rock and roll, all that kind of <laughs> mentality, I, I think... What really makes a a musician memoir uh, so compelling is when you can dive into that. You you kind of get a unfiltered, um, unsanitized view of what their life has been like living that lifestyle and, and kind of really diving into it. Now, maybe Rush is not exactly the band you think of when you think sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but... You know, there's still going to be, uh, if you're a, a rock star for that long period of time, there's going to be something that's going to be captivating that you're not going to necessarily know going into it. So it's those secrets, it's those mm -hmm. new information, those new revelations that come out in the book. I think that's what really makes it compelling. But also learning about some of the uh, kind of philosophy theories or the meanings behind maybe some of their, their most iconic songs or riffs that maybe people may not know about or may have uh, had different ideas of what the meaning of uh, some of their famous songs were. I think that's really where you get something compelling and memorable. But what about you? What, do you, in your mind, makes a compelling musician's memoir? Yeah, I think for me, it depends what stage of life uh, the musicians in, I think for younger artists, I'm thinking of the Taylor Swift's and Billie Eilish's, really what has replaced in my mind those early career memoirs or biographies or, um, has been the uh, the documentary um, about the, the far more concert documentaries proliferating on Netflix. What I find interesting when we get to, you know, the rushes of the world, um, some of these other memoirs, is when they're reflecting not just on the music but on life and and particularly from what i understand of this book getty is talking a lot about grief um one of the uh members of, of rush passing away recently um and, and when the when it's not just about the music because I, I i can't identify with as you said sex drugs rock and roll but but i can i can identify with specifically to disability you know life transitions and figuring out your body and brain and and how to manage grief in a in a new uh era which leads me to ask alex uh who do you want to see a memoir from Ooh. now so this is going to be a bit tough for me because i i think a lot of the artists that i naturally would have originally thought oh i i want to read kind of their their life story They've already put something out. There's already been something mm. presented as these these older generations of musicians. Because uh, as, as you mentioned too, uh, it's like when you get younger artists, I don't want to read a memoir from a younger artist. I want someone who's had a long storied 
famous or infamous career. I, I want some something that's going to be really compelling. I just don't think, at this stage, a Billie Eilish, a, a Taylor Swift, I, their career isn't long enough. Now, they're still eventful. There's still a lot of key moments, but I want to wait until it's a bit further down the road before I dive into their memoir. But one for me I would have loved, unfortunately, he's since been passed away for many years, but Freddie Mercury, I think, would have been a mm. really compelling memoir to read just because of everything that was entailed within his life, you know, his his identity, his sexuality, the music. Uh, Queen has always long been one of my favorite bands of all time and one of the biggest bands in the world. So how they balance all that, the tension and, and uh, kind of the relationships within the band, I think would have been really compelling to explore from his perspective. What about you, John? Yeah, for me and... Uh... I find it hilarious that I'm about to go off the board on my own question, um, <laughs> which is probably mean to you as the host. But um, what I'm really interested in is there are, uh, you know, YouTube channels and projects like Songhouse, which is like a, a, they put out YouTube videos and shorts and um, they come together for songwriting camps and put out uh, short videos. And then the ones that that gain traction, sort of snippets of songs get produced into full full songs. I would love to see memoirs from influencers who are building their their careers in that way, um, or people who've done it previously, uh, folks like uh, Kurt Hugo Scheider or uh, or John Cozart, who are who are young. Uh, I believe John Cozart is um, in early thirties. I, I believe he's he's around that mark too. So earlier on in the memoir, but I'd really love to hear from people who built their careers primarily off of this social media generation in a way that isn't a YouTube short. I find it interesting when people switch their their mediums uh, and and decide to take on some of this uh, writing work. Yeah, no, that's a very uh, good point because it, it's this whole new way to capture an audience to get that immediate reaction that it's just a whole new medium for, for music and artists to really express themselves and get that direct feedback from the audience instead of going through a label, going through the the traditional process of making music. John, thank you so much for bringing this topic forward. It was really fascinating. Have yourself a wonderful day. You as well. Okay, that was John Lepke filling in for Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. Coming up after the break, we got another hour of the show. I will have the regional news update, and Brock Richardson will be here with the sports chat. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio on AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe, in for Dave Brown. It's Wednesday, November 15th, 2023. Coming up on the second hour of the show, Hamilton's transit workers are on strike. Emily Shaver shares some perspective on the strike's impact on commuters. And what does it mean to speak up for yourself and self-advocate? And Anu Paula shares her insights on that subject. All that and more coming up, but first we start with the regional news update. 
We'll begin in British Columbia, where Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was in BC to unveil a new lithium-ion battery plant in Maple Ridge. He spoke about the importance of this plant to the domestic demand for green energy. This new E1 Moly facility here in Maple Ridge will produce up to 135 million battery cells per year and become the largest factory in Canada for high-performance lithium-ion battery cells. This means great middle-class jobs, great middle-class careers for years to come and clean made-in-Canada batteries for tools used in sectors like construction and healthcare. Over to the prairies now, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe says it will be up to school divisions to determine punishments for teachers who don't follow the province's new pronoun policy. This comes after dozens of teachers in the province signed a petition saying they won't follow the new law. The law prevents children under 16 from changing their names or pronouns at school without parental consent. Mo says that the government has not had any discussions about policing divisions, but he said he didn't rule it out down the line in the future. Over to Ontario now. Closing arguments have been heard in the London van attack that claimed the lives of four members of a Muslim family. Brenda Molina Navidad has the latest. The trial in the city of Windsor has heard that 22-year-old Nathaniel Veltman hit the Afsal family with his truck on June 6, 2021, killing four of them and seriously hurting a nine-year-old boy. While a Crown prosecutor told jurors in closing arguments this week that Veltman committed an act of terrorism in the attack, the defence lawyer continued to maintain that this was not the case. It's the first case in Canada where the country's terrorism laws are being put before a jury in a first-degree murder trial. Brenda Molina Navidad, The Canadian Press. And finally, over to Quebec, where this year's forest fires in the province burned more land than the last 20 years combined. Naira Ahmed has the story. Roughly 4.5 million hectares of land burned during this year's record-breaking fire season. The agency's director general says more than 1 million hectares burned where most people in the province live, noting that while resources were strained, there were no deaths or critical infrastructure destroyed. Quebec's forest minister says an additional $16 million will be going towards the Fire Prevention Agency to purchase new equipment and fund fire prevention initiatives. Naira Ahmed, the Canadian Press. That's it for the regional news. It's now time for a sports chat with Brock Richardson. So, Brock, we were talking on Monday about the Buffalo Bills and and the struggles that they were having. Well, it turns out they decided to make a coaching change and uh, their offensive coordinator is no longer with the team. And that's right. Uh, Ken Dorsey, who has been with um, the team since uh, Brian Dable, their previous offensive coordinator went to the New York Giants, has been relieved of his duties. And uh, Joe Brady has taken over, which is the quarterback uh, coach and he will take over as the offensive coordinator in the interim it's not a permanent change he's got the lovely interim tag on him at the moment um i this is going to lead into a few ways we're going to take this number one is that 
I think this change was necessary. I think that something had to change. I mean, we we know that the Buffalo Bills are, uh, quite frankly, underachieving in what they should be doing. Um, but I think, Alex, w- what puzzles me is that all too often we we use the coach as the 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 finger pointer, the the scapegoat, which maybe is the easiest thing to do because players have contracts. Um, you know, th- this is the way it goes. But I all too often think that the coach sort of gets the okay, you're out because we need to see a change. And I and I think sometimes in some situations, players need to hold some accountability. Now, having said that, I do think players, when coaches do leave, do feel a sense of responsibility. If we look at uh, Edmonton uh, recently relieving their head coach, Jay Woodcroft, and then replacing it with the AHL coach, um, Connor McDavid said right away, we have to take some accountability. I just think all too often we see coaches get the the brunt of it and say, no, you're in, but then you're out. Yeah, I think part of that is the fact that coaches oftentimes are making much less than what some of these star players are on the field. And as a result, you know, and the sports uh, obviously play a role within that because of different strategies and how the, uh, the sports are coached. But I think, I mean, if you're looking for the Buffalo Bills, it's a lot easier to kind of make a change at the coaching level, especially at the offensive coordinator level, like they did with Ken Dorsey, than, oh, well, we need to sit Josh Allen down because that's not going to be a popular move at all. And your your other options are not nearly as uh, kind of palatable for not only the team, but the fans. And you basically want the players on the field you you believe in them you've invested in them you want them to perform so by taking the approach of getting rid of a coach instead of maybe benching a star player or or making changes in the lineup you can maybe hope to motivate them as you mentioned with the with Connor McDavid and the Edmonton Oilers after they made that coaching change in the NHL I think though especially for the NFL because so much of uh, coaching is so integrated into the play calling into the strategy of the game because every single play is being designed up by the coach you make the play and then you pause and the coach is calling in the next play i think there's a lot more weight and responsibility on coaches in the nfl than let's say in the nhl where you're going to design plays but you're you're not in there every single second of action telling the players okay you need to do this now this is how we're going to attack this situation the players go out and play they try to institute the coach's philosophy but it's on them when they're on the ice and and to your point you're literally in the head of the Mm -hmm. quarterback and and spouting out the plays and you can see with your own two eyes okay this is what's happening with the defense we're getting away with this we're 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 struggling with the run we're we're we need to do more passing or vice or whatever Versus what you're saying as NHL coaches may be able to change lines and throw players in blenders and take a player from line four and put them on line one or whatever. But it's harder to to do that. And I think to the other point that I want to make here is that the the audience or the fan bases are the paying customers. And so if you anger the paying customers, you're then not going to get as much 
people coming through the gate because they're going to say, well, what do you mean you sat down Josh Allen or Connor McDavid or Sidney Crosby, you know, pick, pick the marquee player from whatever sport you want to. It's just the reality of sports. And that's where a lot of the players hold a lot of the cards that, um, that we talk about, but yeah, just a, a small point on uh, Jay Woodcroft. This was, uh, Jay Woodcroft being fired from the Edmonton Oilers, this was obviously planned for at least a couple of days because we learned that he got fired and then the AHL coach was immediately taking over. Like, this wasn't, oh, his assistant coach is going to take over. No, this was immediately, oh, no, the AHL coach is going to take over. And to the best of my knowledge, there's no interim tag on it. I think he's he's the guy and he's the one that's in there. So it's interesting to see sometimes how you have the interim tag uh fully present and then other times not so much uh, yeah and you, you you have two different examples of that with the the nfl with the bills and then with the oilers as you had talked about i i think that in order especially with the nhl season because it's is still so young uh the season's still young and there's still a a true chance for the oilers to live up to their potential, to make it to the the playoffs and do well in the playoffs like everyone is expecting them to, I think putting that interim tag on the head coach would basically kind of signal to, to that team. It's like, well, we're not truly believing in this season. I mean, we're not fully investing and committing to the, the coaching change that we've done. Whereas with the Bills, you're, you understand this is a limited time situation. They're going to have to hire a coach at some point to, to fill in that gap, whether it's at the quarterback level or a new offensive coordinator in the offseason. Unless the Bills play well, the offense turns around, well, then that coach has earned his job, his position, and he can kind of take that interim tag off. And it's not really going to have that much of an impact on the team's performance going forward, bro. And the other thing, too, Alex, is the NFL season is a little around halfway over. Like, mm-hmm. there's not there's not room here. The, the Buffalo Bills are underachieving, and yes, to your point, so are the Edmonton Oilers, but there's a lot more runway, and I just think that's sort of where there's a little bit more of an urgency point of view uh, from from Buffalo versus Edmonton just because, believe it or not, the season is about halfway over, and it's crazy how, how quickly the NFL season goes, at least to me anyways. Yeah, now uh, you also wanted to quickly touch on some uh, news that you were hearing out of the NBA world. What's that all about? Yes, so I heard yesterday after we did uh, the segment that uh, apparently the NBA is interested in expanding in Canada and the two names or cities that came out was Vancouver. Now, remember the Vancouver Grizzlies were there in the 90s and then moved to Memphis, and they've also looking at Montreal. So uh, my quick thoughts on this is given that the Grizzlies didn't work and didn't stay there, I would lean more towards the Montreal side of things. I think Montreal is a pretty decent fan base with any of their teams they have, Montreal Alouettes, Montreal Canadiens, uh, and the, the soccer team as well. I think I would lean to give them a try, given that Vancouver's already been there, done that. Your your thoughts? I, I would be more open almost to Vancouver, just based on the fact that you also had a diehard fan base just south of the border with Seattle when the Supersonics left as well. So I I think there there is a chance to almost capitalize on two markets with one team in Vancouver. 
and, and that may be part of that attraction. Obviously, as you did mention, the Grizzlies were in Vancouver for a long time, then they got moved down to Memphis. It didn't work the first time around. Well, I mean, with Montreal, it's a bit of an unknown commodity. Maybe there is a, a dedicated fan base, but I think just in terms of already the concentration of of teams in that region of North America, between Canada and uh, the U.S., it's a lot more saturated, where that West Coast, that North, uh, Northwest Pacific area, there's maybe a bit more opportunity for growth there, Brock. Yep, and I, and I also understand that as well. And maybe it is something they try, you know, maybe they go back to having the relationships, but I wouldn't mind seeing a team in Montreal um be uh playing basketball hey I, I would love to see teams all over the country playing basketball and make it a truly international league instead of just one team but that's all the time we have brock thank you so much have yourself a wonderful day thank you that was brock richardson at the sports desk and coming up after the break hamilton transit workers are on strike emily shavers shares some perspective on the strike's impact on commuters you're watching now with dave brown on AMI. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Alex Smythe. Bus drivers in Hamilton are on strike as the union and city work on a new deal. This transit strike has had a real impact on those who rely on the services to get around the city. Emily Shavers is one of those people. She uses the system regularly to commute to school. She's the founder of True Faces and is here now to share more. Hello, Emily. How are you doing today? Good morning. I'm good. That's great to hear. So this strike has been going on for about a week now. How impactful has the strike been on you? Well, I mean, needless to say, it's it's like having your independence stripped away when we're talking about removing transit for um, somebody like myself who's visually impaired and quite literally can't drive. You know, now we're relying on services like Uber or um, walking. And I know uh, some of the recommendations have been like, oh, like, see if you can bike to work. It's really great for yourself. Well, you know, I can't bike independently. So kind of looking at what are those different options. So um, a lot of a lot of the people have been thinking about like getting to classes, um, which is definitely an issue, but also thinking about things like going to get groceries. It's out of my walking range. I'm not going to walk back with my jugs of milk in my hands. So like, what is that looking like for people? Well, and that's so important because it's beyond just that you mentioned that commuting to class, that's one one element, one aspect of it. But if you're you're living in, in Hamilton, you're 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 on your own or you're you're living with housemates, you, you gotta get all those essentials like groceries, like food, and, and the bus system really is a lifeline, especially on the Hamilton Mountain area where things are a bit more spread out. So what alternatives have you been using? You mentioned walking, you mentioned Uber, are those kind of the two key ones that are are you're relying on during this time? 
Absolutely. I'm lucky enough that I'm about a 20 minute walk from campus. So I have been able to use that method of transportation. However, it's also getting cold and my classes are in the evening. So sometimes walking home at 830 at night, you know, I'm bundled with my hat, my scarf, my mittens, um, and it can definitely take a toll. Um, it's a lot different than walking during a, a nice sunny day like it is today. Um, and then also, yeah, Uber. Um, I you know, also want to engage in recreational activities. Mm -hmm. I had a birthday on the weekend and I went to go see the Eras tour movie. Uh, it was great, by the way. But yeah, I had to take an Uber there because, again, those buses aren't running. Um, and uh, another option to this, um, the accessible transit is supposedly still running. But as somebody who uses the regular bus system, um, I haven't had to use this disability transit service before. And the application process for it is long which is good you're weeding out the people who maybe don't need it um but it means that you can't quickly access it in the event of this strike yeah it's not something that it can be a, a quick substitute if you you haven't engaged with it in the past um mm -hmm. in in terms of the city and, and the the school itself what would you like to see them do to make this time a bit of an easier adjustment period for for all students, because it's not just you that's being impacted, it's gonna be uh, any student who, who relies on public transit, which is gonna be most students go, attending Mohawk College. What would you like to see the city or school offer up as an alternative or, or ways to help ease the burden during this time? My class was definitely looking pretty light yesterday and, uh, you know, I didn't have to wait in line to get dinner um, in the cafeteria. So uh, it's definitely looking a little light on campus. And, you know, we just came out of a pandemic where everybody was at home anyways. So let's start. I would love to see some of those skills start to be implemented. So um, moving classes to an online format, if they can be done um, so that students can still have access to those materials and that full kind of lecture style rather than just maybe looking at the PowerPoint, um, but still have that kind of in-depth explanation about it. Um, I've seen some people sharing offers for carpooling and ride sharing, and that's great as well. Um, but how are those interactions being facilitated? Obviously, people are picking up their friends, but <laughs> we've talked on here before about what happens when you don't have all of these friends who have maybe your, your friends are also taking public transit and and what is that looking like? So um, I think moving things back to an online for kind of a temporary fix um, is, is probably the best solution for a lot of people. Absolutely. So sticking within the world of transit, you also took a solo trip to Toronto recently. How did you get into the city? Absolutely. So before everything went haywire, um, yeah, I took the GO train actually from West Harbor GO station to Union Station for the first time uh, ever. And so what was that experience uh, like? Like take us through through that journey with, with the different forms of transit and, and how you felt during that journey on, the, on doing it all solo. Well, uh, the stress was definitely in place. It was very nerve-wracking. Um, typically, if I was to do something like this, I would do orientation and mobility training beforehand, have uh, a like sighted staff person um, come with me and, and kind of teach me the different ways. But um, due to the short time frame of when this trip came up, um, I didn't have that opportunity. 
So all of a sudden I knew I was going to Toronto. I knew I was going by myself and, you know, the nerves were kicking in. I've taken the GO train, uh, but I don't typically take it to Union because that's the kind of biggest, busiest uh, and most intimidating spot nonetheless. But um, I, I, this is where I had to get off and I knew I had to do it and it was an event worth going to. So I, I braved it. Um, now, <laughs> while Union was also a very familiar and busy space, uh, so was West Harbor GO. It's somewhere I've never been before. Um, and not to mention that the uh, website and the in-person train times never match and you never actually know uh, when it's coming. So I arrived there in the <laughs> pitch black of the morning, you know, uh, as we are in now and um, took it into Union. And, you know, I really allowed myself to have a lot of time during this trip, really planning ahead to make sure that when I got off at Union, I wasn't like, I didn't need to be at my venue in the next five minutes. Like I gave myself about 20 minutes of time to um, get off my train take a moment. Where am I? It's really great that in union, you can follow all of the people, but sometimes if you follow all of the people, um, you stop paying attention to those other things around you that are going to be cues for especially getting back on a train to go home. Mm. Um, that was kind of the, the more nerve wracking part of like, okay, I can get off a train at union. I can follow the people. The people are going out the doors. People are going to work. Like that's kind of <laughs> the easier part. Um, but it's coming back into Union, finding a train, and then being able to find that platform that the train was on. So I really learned how uh, I relying on those different technologies that I have in my life uh, to be able to problem solve. You know, when the train times don't match what was presented on the website, or um, looking at a screen and being able to use magnification on my phone to kind of zoom in and look at when are the different train times, what stops are they at. Um, and, and being able to ask people around me as well, uh, a little bit of social anxiety that comes up with that, but, um, learned a lot about myself and kind of what I was able to achieve, um, in getting on these, getting on and off these trains because like, Hey, I did it. Um, but I also, I also learned a lot about my, my problem solving skills and, uh, kind of a real sense of accomplishment afterwards. Oh, absolutely. Like as someone who has taken that train many times into Union Station, especially during those rush hour mornings where it is at its busiest, it can be very easy to navigate with all the hordes of people who are making their way out the doors. But <laughs> as you say too, you can also get very lost in the shuffle. You get disoriented. I, I found any time that I would travel without a white cane and I, I would just practice more uh, kind of I guess defensive walking for lack of a better term, <laughs> avoiding people and, and being going a bit slower, I had more success. But if I took out my white cane and used that to help navigate, it, it was like an attracting uh, kind of beam of light or something for, for other people. I would get bumped <laughs> into all the time. I don't know why. It's, it's something about it that it just somehow subconsciously attracts people to come and walk in, into you. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that that didn't happen for you and that you were able to kind of utilize some of the technology in, in the tools that you were already aware of to help navigate. What did you learn for next time when you do take that trip again to Toronto? What skills and what, what are you going to do to better set yourself up for that journey? I think the biggest things I learned were a to give myself lots of time mm -hmm. to kind of get things done. Like it's so much worse when you feel rushed. Um, but also uh, that like, I, <laughs> As a person with anxiety, you know, you you're, you start to spiral. You think of all of the things that could possibly go wrong. And 
to understand that you're you're never going to be able to predict everything. I could not have predicted probably at least half of the things that happened on this trip and the way things were going to go between downtown construction, uh, trying to trying to find the like going in through the CIBC Square instead of the Union Station Terminal. Like, what are all these different things that are going to come up and these different challenges that are going to present themselves? I'm never going to be able to think of all of them. But being able to think of the skills that I have to be able to like take away in those experiences, knowing that like if you get stuck in a sticky situation, like you can ask somebody, you can use your magnification software, you can get on the next train because you are in no rush to get home. Like if you miss this one and just thinking of all of the potential solutions um, really is what kind of grounded me in this experience. Do you, do you recommend that people kind of challenge themselves like you did with taking the solo uh, trip and just uh, really kind of push themselves a bit out of that comfort zone because you clearly went out of your comfort zone to do this. Do you think it's important to sometimes challenge yourself every once in a while? Absolutely. The amount of um, gratitude and appreciation for myself I had after this trip and being able to say like you did that like I think I called my mom on the way home and I was like I did it I got on the trip like I was so proud of myself when I did it um, regardless of like the stress that I encountered um, and I think it was a really good experience to remind myself that I can do those things and push myself and and the feeling I got from that you know you have the stress in the moment but it it ultimately helps you grow and kind of develop along the way. Absolutely. Emily, thank you so much for, for sharing your, uh, your your journey into Toronto. I'm glad to hear that it was successful, that you, you navigated and, and you come away with a greater appreciation uh, for yourself. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you. That was Emily Shaver. She is the founder of True Faces and she's currently studying at Mohawk College in Hamilton, Ontario. Coming up after the break, what does it mean to speak up for yourself and self-advocate? A new Paula shares her insight into the subject. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv and streaming in audio on AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe, in for Dave. In both professional and personal life, it's important to speak up and advocate for yourself and your needs. It can be challenging, though, to know when to do so appropriately and how to yield the best results. Anupala has been thinking about this topic recently and wanted to explore it further. Anu is the founder of Anu Vision Coaching and Consulting, and she joins me now. Hello, Anu. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Alex. How are you? I'm doing very well. So why did this topic resonate with you, Anu? Well, Alex, first and foremost, every month uh, I am tasked with you know, trying to come up with an interesting topic for this particular segment. And to be quite honest, uh, the topic of speaking up comes up a lot in my conversations. And so I thought it would be nice to bring bring it, you know, to this uh, particular platform, because I think it's a topic that we often don't talk about. You know, as you mentioned, it is a difficult thing 
to to do, uh, you know, to sometimes um, speak uh, for what we believe in, for advocating for ourselves. And so I wanted to unpack it a little bit here today. And so these are conversations that I have with friends and with my clients as well all the time. And what I think what speaking up really boils down to is speaking up for your uh, your values, so honoring your values. And and so this may seem like a very obvious question, but why is it important to do so? Well, for a number of reasons, but for of course, it's important to be able to communicate your feelings. So, for example, if you're holding on to negative feelings internally, um, that can really weigh a lot on you, like heavy. And so being able to release those feelings, it's very important. And, you know, negative feelings can manifest in different ways, physically, mentally. And so that could go down a real negative spiral. Um, it's also really important to be able to communicate our needs. So, you know, if you're, if you're struggling uh, in a relationship or in school or at work, it's really important to be able to let someone know so you can get the help that you need. So those are just a couple of examples, but there are many others. And so let's let's ground it a bit in the, the context of a workplace. So what what is the value of speaking up in the workplace, especially if there may be some some tension or issues that you're coming across? Well, first, firstly, I mean, you know, if you're encountering any barriers at work, so whether that's to do with um, not understanding a particular task that you have to do, or maybe just your position in general, I would say that would be something where you definitely would want to speak to your manager about, so you get very a lot of clarity on what you're expected to do. Um, uh, yeah, I've, I've experienced this myself, you know, personally, Alex, where, you know, I've been asked to do something and I didn't really understand what, what that particular issue was that I needed to do. And um, it was a little stressful, to be honest, because I, I think sometimes we don't want to look... Um, I don't want to say the word like dumb, but I mean, like we don't want to look incompetent. And so often we hold back. But I think there's a lot of power in in speaking up and just being able to, you know, um, like put your hands up and say, I don't understand this. Please provide some clarity. And that's very empowering, I'd say. So it's like that thing sometimes people with vision loss, you know, like we don't want to ask for help. But when, when we do, it's like we feel so much better. And I think there's a lot of power in that, you know. Um, so one of the other things I wanted to actually talk about is, you know, when you're seeking new challenges at work, um, sometimes work can get a bit monotonous and you get really comfortable in what you're doing, but you're looking for new challenges. And so I think it's really important to be able to communicate that, you know, to your uh, higher ups as well, because you just never know like what what's happening in the in the background. And there could be opportunities for you to spread your wings and and do other things. Absolutely. Um, the other the other thing I really want to just mention really quickly is in you know when you're in group meetings, um, often you know everyone ha is thinking the same thing that they want to say something, but everyone's a little shy to speak up. And so I think that's another area where it's really important to be able to speak your mind, especially well, if it's something you don't disagree if you don't agree with. And and I'm sure too that uh, as you mentioned, it's like there may be others who are sharing that view. It, it can really lead to a a collaborative conversation, so to speak, you know, and, and if there is issues, if there are, if there is tension in a, a work environment by 
bringing it forward by talking about it, you can you can address it directly and instead of maybe internalizing it or taking it elsewhere and letting it kind of grow and maybe fester down the road. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking up takes a lot of courage and, and practice. So I think the more you do it, um, there's so many benefits to it. And so, as we mentioned, like you, this was uh, from an article that you you had uh, 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 read. What were some of the tips in the article that uh, you took away from it? Well, you know, there were definitely there tips that I took away, but I but I thought I'd take a different twist on this question, Alex, mm-hmm. because um, I wanted to relate it to things that um, resonate with me. Right. So, what I wanted to say is that you know, speaking up, like I said, takes practice. Um, ask yourself when it when do I need to speak up? This is something that did come up, you know, in the article. Um, so often we ask ourselves, you know, is there something that we're avoiding? You know, is there a conversation that we need to have, but we're feeling, uh, you know, stress about, you know, having that conversation? And then you ask yourself, if what, if so, like why? What what is it that um, I'm really afraid of? So really um, reflecting on that that can help you. Um, put yourself in that mindset to have that conversation. Um, And then listen to your body. Um, So, you know, stress can manifest in different ways in our body. So whether it's feeling butterflies in your stomach or feeling a lump in your throat. Um, And, you know, our bodies provide us with a lot of messages. So really listening to those responses. So it's really important to, you know, to be able to listen to it. Um, and the other thing is about listening, uh, sorry, doing your homework. Um, so, for example, if it's like workplace harassment or any kind of legal issues, um, it's really important to learn and understand your rights. Um, that's a really, really big one, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I, I kind of find within this conversation, too, it and you had touched on it, is a, there's, there's a sense of a pride, gratitude, when you do speak up, when you do advocate for yourself, when you're, you are voicing your needs, that mm-hmm. it, it, it builds that positive self-worth. And so I, I'm wondering, like, how can, how does speaking up really enforce that and, and enforce that self-image and self-worth that, that you want to maintain to have that positive out, outlook and out view of yourself? Well, I've I've talked a lot about values here, and I think this kind of correlates to what you're what you're talking about. Is that when we actually do have take the courage and um, speak our truth, really be authentic. Um, I think just that in itself is really empowering and can really, um, you know, support that self worth and making making us feel empowered and strong. There's a lot of strength in in speaking your truth and i think that carries a lot of weight when we talk about you know positive um, self-worth and so let's say okay you you build the confidence you you gain the momentum you decide to speak up and and advocate for your needs what next uh well um i think uh you know, just being able to, A, like, you know, share with others, to share with your family and friends, like, hey, this is what I did, you know. I think uh, just celebrating that in itself, I think, is really important. And But I think speaking up for yourself 
is one piece, but then there's that follow-up, so action. So depending on the outcome of the conversation, you know, um, so I think it's really individual. It's hard to, to kind of answer that question, but but I think depending on how, how that conversation went, if it was a positive uh, conversation, then whatever outcomes came out of that conversation, it's really important to follow through. And as I'm speaking through this, I think even if it was if it didn't go the way you wanted to, I think it's really important to really explore like what's next. Um, I I think there's a action is really I think what it boils down to, you know, take action. Well, and and I'm I'm sure too. It's also kind of just reflecting. It's, it's something you you've kind of mentioned as well. Just reflecting mm-hmm. back on what that experience was like, whether it was positive, negative, and and learning from speaking up and what was the reaction? How would you kind of use that again going forward if you're in the same situation? Would you do things differently, things like that? I feel like there's a lot of room to grow from from that experience. So true, yes. And so before we let you go, you you are also quite busy outside of just coming and being a, a, a recurring voice on this show and new. You will be emceeing an event tomorrow. Tell us a bit more about what you got going on on the sidelines. Yes, I would say Alex is never a dull moment. <laughs> so I was recently invited to MC the Inclusive Employer Awards here in Surrey, BC. It's happening at the Surrey Art Centre. And um, this is an event that's been going on for, I think, about eight years. And it's an event that acknowledges local employers who are creating inclusivity and practicing inclusive hiring. And so I am very, very excited about this because um, one of my, the hats that I wear is around um, vocational consulting and, and training and consulting for employers uh, who want to in- create inclusivity in the workplace. And so um, it is uh, an event from between 2 and 4.30 p.m. And the lovely thing is, is that... Um, Thanks to some generous sponsors, uh, tickets are complimentary. And um, uh, so it's going to be a great event. Um, and there's going to be an employer forum where employers can come and, and talk about what some of the barriers are to, you know, um, uh you know, hiring and also what the uh, successes have been as well. And a parallel will be a an employee forum as well for self-advocates. So I'm really looking forward to this event. Absolutely. I, I mean, they got a, a great person to come and MC the event, uh, <laughs> someone who, who knows a bit about this whole uh, field. So I'm I'm very yeah. excited for you, Anu. Uh, uh, have a blast uh, uh, MCing that event tomorrow. And uh, thank you so much for uh, chatting with me today. Thank you so much, Alex. Have a lovely day. You as well. That was Anu Paula. Anu is the founder of Anu Vision coaching and consulting coming up after the break we find out what's coming up on today's edition of kelly and ramya and it's roundtable time elizabeth moeller has a great topic to explore you're watching now with dave brown on ami
Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Alex Smythin for Dave, who's been off all week. So we have our roundtable discussion, but before we get to any of that, we got to find out what's coming up on today's edition of Kelly and Ramya. So to do that, let's welcome in co-host Ramya Muthan. Hello, Ramya. How are you doing today? Hey, Alex, I'm doing well. And on today's show, we're talking about the history of sitcoms. So we're starting at the first sitcom ever um, uh, put on television that aired on television. And then we're going to get into much more as the history evolves with sitcoms with Greg David on our TV talk. Also, St. John's community reporter uh, Marissa, Marisa Hersey-Meisner is joining us to talk about upcoming St. Mary's Band Christmas concerts. Uh, etc. Lots of other things as well on the community report. And registered nurse Leslie DePoe is stopping by to talk about men's health, how we can normalize conversations about it. Of course, that is the bigger goal, uh, but we're talking all the different nuances around men's health. Well, it's the perfect month to do so, especially with yep. Movember in full force. So that sounds like a phenomenal show, Ramya, and that is 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio, AMI-TV, be sure to watch Kelly and Ramya. Ramya, don't go anywhere because we're going to be bringing in Elizabeth Moeller, who has the roundtable topic for today. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello. Hello, Alex. Hello, Ramya. Happy Wednesday. I wanted to get creative today. So the first creative, can, first Canadian coins featuring the face of King Charles were unveiled yesterday in Winnipeg for the King's 75th birthday. And since 1953, of course, the portrait of the late Queen Elizabeth has graced our coins. And the mint showcased the image of the monarch that will appear on one side of all of its coins. And the design, interestingly enough, uh, was done by Stephen Rosati, and there was over 300 contestants. That's a lot of people. So yeah. I thought today we'd get a little creative. And I'd love to know, we're design artists. We're getting to create our own coins. If you were selected to select the next series of Canadian coins, what would they look like? Well, and who would be on them? Uh, Elizabeth, before we get into that, why don't we describe oh. the, uh, the coins Absolutely. themselves for those who can't see on screen. So on screen, we do have a couple of images on the back of the coins from the Royal Canadian Mint. So they consist of the side profile of King Charles's face, and along one side of the coin reads King Charles III in Roman numerals. And on the other side, it reads DG Rex, which is Latin for by the grace of God king so i apologize for interrupting you there elizabeth no, that's so, not a problem so i what, got too excited <laughs> so let me uh, why don't we let you re uh, reset the question then for sure yeah so we're, we're design artists today and i'd love to hear from you ramia if you were to create um a coin a canadian coin who would be on it and what would it look like yeah we've talked um we've seen actually a lot of the kind of very significant um, people of history or uh, specifically of Canadian history, people who've created uh, opportunities for us, milestones for us, show up in these conversations around coins and just around memorabilia uh, for Canadians. And I think that we should maybe take um, some lighter approaches and start adding lots of different 
coins of entertainers. So Canadian entertainers, Canadian artists, Canadian mm. musicians, um, people who are present day, not just past, and maybe just kind of informalize this a little bit. It's... It, Definitely, you know, the course of it seems like we're moving to continue to be more formal, continue to have figureheads on our coins. But how about just some fun, guys? Okay, well, Ramia, you're, you're mentioning hey. fun. So who do you want on? Who, who's uh, some of the fun characters you want on? Well, yeah, in my on lifetime, yeah, yes. right? in my lifetime, it's going to be like the Drakes and the Justin Beaters and the Cindy mm. Dion's and, <laughs> and the people. Okay, Justin Bieber coin? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, right exactly so stuff that you know it's definitely going to stir the pot um because like why would we put justin bieber on a coin but i'm seriously like uh, ironically seriously saying that it's just for the fun of it see for me if if i was to design these coins first off i i i will uh say i don't know if we necessarily need coins all that much going forward because <laughs> we are moving okay. <laughs> I, I i'm open to getting rid of coins altogether just based on the fact of where we are in today's society in terms of everything being digital paperless you know going by card or phone or what have you that the value of coins really has diminished through time but to play this game, I say you don't have any figureheads, any people on the coins, because as we've we've seen in in these conversations over the last while, it's if people are not controversial now, well, down the road there may be controversy that we are not uh, aware of or or we we didn't anticipate when it comes to putting people on our our money. I much rather just deal with iconography of what makes. Uh, represent Canada the best, and we see it on our our dollar bills and and our our printed uh, currencies, and even on the coins themselves. On the other side, you get iconic mm -hmm. images like the beaver, the loon, the polar bear, things like that. The and then even like on the the printed bills, you get things like the Canada arm and things like that. I want to lean into that more. I want to really celebrate Canadian innovation, history, identity, without having it tied to an individual person, but more of a philosophy. And one thing we've always, uh, we've talked about too in the past is let each region of the country have their own uh, kind of bill or coin to represent that region. And then you kind of build it together. Because one thing I really like is the, I think it's a euro or the pound, where all the coins on one side, like kind of come together to form it's just like mm. shield or crest mm -hmm. let's do that and come up with a creative design to represent Canada overall maybe forming the maple leaf on one side and then the representation on the other side I don't know that's my idea Elizabeth what about you yeah okay I I struggled to come up with one so I I did I did go the route of the person I'm not in favor of of the monarch on a coin but I did think about Terry Fox um mm. you know very very uh, prolific hero in Canada ran to Thunder Bay so on one side a, a you know picture of Terry and then perhaps a picture of the monument uh, in Thunder Bay um that was definitely one person that I thought really stood out for me I also really like tactile things on coins so for a while I don't know if you guys remember the poppy on the quarter mm. um that mm. they had I don't think it's still in 
circulation, but something like that, like perhaps a maple leaf or a trillium flower on a, on a coin could be really, really nice. Um, and then the other person, and I did, I did again, go the route of person, um, would be Louis Riel. So I, I didn't have one, I couldn't just pick one for the coins. And then of course I thought about two, the, the, the ridges, I really like the ridges of the Toomey because it's easy to detect in your wallet. You know what it is. So something that's very easily identifiable when you pick it up, if we're not going with Alex's get rid of all coins um, approach. So that those are my kind of thoughts. <laughs> so what do you think of that, that uh, idea of it though, get, potentially doing away with coins altogether, Elizabeth? Are you, do you think I'm being too controversial mm, what about with this? all the laundry machines that need coins or the carts in the grocery store? Yes, I know we're all going to go smart. You smart just tap them. <laughs> okay, okay, fair. I don't know. I think, honestly, when Rogers went down last summer and yeah. I didn't have cash and I realized cash isn't just coins, that to me really solidified that we still do need some form of currency. So then would we have just bills, like starting with the dollar bill um, and then what about anything below a dollar? So I don't know about getting rid of coins. I think that there's still some use for coins for sure. What I, and so Ramia, what do you, what do you think of my do away with coins altogether? Because I would even uh, argue, are there many things you can actually buy that's less than a dollar these days, or even less than five dollars these days? Mm. So maybe you have a one dollar bill, and then you have the five, ten, uh, twenty, fifty, a hundred. What do you think of that approach instead? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I like our coins in Canada because they're accessible. They're all mm -hmm. um, tactilely accessible, which is uh, the least you can say uh, or can't <laughs> say it at all about American money, period. Um, so I do trust that if we step away from coins that we are going to get some kind of accessible uh, replacement or solution to getting rid of coins. But in the meantime, I hate dealing with coins. I think that they're, we're long overdue with getting rid of coins. Uh, I do agree with you, Elizabeth, that we're not ready as of yet because there's just mm -hmm. too much still going on where we have to use coins and um, our, our systems haven't upgraded, but we're almost there. So just the last couple things need to get the push going and then we can get rid of coins, Alex. Yes. Yeah, so so the, part of the reason why I present this is the fact that the number of places I have gone to recently where they literally do not accept cash anymore. I, mm -hmm. I think it's ridiculous that they can get away with it and say, oh, we don't accept cash. But the fact is, we've sort of gotten used to that in a little bit, that it's like, oh, okay, well, I'll just tap. Obviously, there is the barrier of like, well, what if you don't have a smartphone or or if you don't mm -hmm. have credit cards or, or debit cards? You know, cash is still our official currency. It cash should is be king. accepted. Cash it, is king. It, it yeah. should still be king. And maybe whether or not it should bear a king on it, that's a different question. But... That that is the that is the game of today. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so okay, I will give each of you one last opportunity, one last word. You got about 30 seconds each. Rami, I'll start with you on this. 30 seconds. What is your overall thoughts on maybe having something a bit of an intermediary, maybe let's say a $1 bill instead of a uh, coin yeah. system going Yeah, I'd go with the $1 bill with a half a uh, Braille cell on it. Three dots. <laughs> there we go. Elizabeth, what about you? Would you make, would you kind of make that adjustment to the $1 bill instead of coins? I would make that adjustment for sure, but I would keep all the coins under $1 until we get something better. 
Very yeah. good, very good. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for bringing this topic forward. You have yourself a wonderful day. You too, thank you. And Ramya, thank you as well. You have yourself a wonderful day also. Have a good day, Alex. Okay, perfect. That was Elizabeth and Ramya, and that's it for the show. It's all the time we have. I want to thank all the guests who were on today. Be sure to come and tune in tomorrow. We'll have more great content for you. I'm Alex Smythe. Goodbye. See you tomorrow. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.